you have your power users and they want more. <laughs> and so you want to design more sophisticated, more sort of advanced features for them. And then you have, which is really, if you think of like the law of technology adoption curve, right? Like those users are really like the, I don't know, first two and a half or 12 and a half percent of the total market, right? The innovators and the early adopters. And then you have the everyone else essentially, right? And so, but you've still got to design for, for them as well. So that's where we're thinking about, you know, educational content and like whether it's in-app content or YouTube or a support site, trying to educate people in terms of like getting them over that initial learning curve. So it's, it's just watching people use the product, talking with them, but it's interesting based on their sort of background and skill set, how different the feedback is, which is one of the hardest things to man to, to kind of manage and digest because you, you're like, okay, well, which door, you know, which direction do we, do we, do we go in with this, with this particular feature? Hi everyone, welcome to Design Drives, where we explore why, how and what design and designers are driving forward. The mission is to interview the most forward-thinking designers and innovative creators on the planet to inspire and help you to reach your full creative potential and to make a positive impact in the world. In the episode, I chat with Dan Lasivita, who is the co-founder of Play. Play is a startup based in New York that creates a digital design tool where you can design apps directly on your phone. In the episode, we chat about the role of mobile interactions for innovation, but also why innovation often starts by saying no when it comes to product requirements. The approach of focus actually opens up the field for innovation. We also dig into cross-device interaction and his experience leading a major design agency in New York called Firstborn, which got later acquired, where we learn about how to run a large design business and grow it even further. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, I'm here with Dan Lasavita. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So we're looking forward to the conversation uh, with you. So you're co-founder and co-CEO of Play in New York, which is a mobile first design tool, uh, which I recently came across. Super interesting how you guys approach basically a new way to design digital products. So really looking forward to learn more about that. Also, how does it shape the design process for the designers? So yeah, really um, looking forward. I think it would be really great then for the audience. If you can just give a bit more context maybe about yourself, how it all started out for you. We have a lot of experience in the design industry, um, also founding a, uh, or running a design agency. Um, so I think just digging a little bit into that, a little bit about your journey, how it all started out for you would be great. Yeah, of course. Um, so prior to Play, uh, so I co-founded Play with uh, three other co-founders, three other partners, uh, June, Eric, and Michael. We all worked together for now over well over 15, 16 years uh, at Firstborn, which was a design agency, design and technology agency that Michael founded in 1997. So I actually started at Firstborn as a Flash developer um, back in the good old Flash days mm -hmm. um, and uh, ultimately was, was the CEO uh, a firstborn June was our chief creative officer. And so we all worked together at firstborn. Um, I, my background, um, you know, it started as a flash developer sort of made my way into product management, uh, project management, um, and then just worked with the rest of the team and, and built the agency. And I think that was one of the things that I enjoyed doing most was just <clears throat> working with the rest of our team members and kind of building teams, growing teams and, and helping to, to build the agency. And so, um, we ultimately sold Firstborn to Dentsu. Uh, that's, that was actually 10 years ago. Um, and then June and myself stayed 
for eight years after we sold. And it was then um, we decided to leave and then start play. So uh, at Firstborn, we're always designing websites and mobile applications, you know, for, for clients. And I think it was always looking at the tools that we were using, but, and there's amazing tools and there's been amazing advancements in a lot of the design tools, but uh, there wasn't really anything that was focused on mobile product design. And so that's where June kind of got the initial idea of, it's like, I think we just need to change the approach of how we create a platform for mobile product design. And so eventually led him to come up with the idea for play. And, uh, and then we, we, we started play uh, about uh, almost three years ago. So we've been at this a uh, little, a little over two and a half years now. Yeah. And maybe just to give people a bit more context about play actually is right. It's a, app basically that you can use to design your mobile application, all that kind of digital products, but you do it directly on your phone. I think that's sort of the twist, right? Um, you guys, I think, expanding towards different uh, platforms right now, but maybe you can give a bit more context also how, you know, you know, I think you're already touching about like, you know, the problem that you guys came across um, and basically what you tried to solve. If you can highlight that a little bit and how, you know, it all started out basically with Play. Yeah, of course. So, so yeah, so plays the, the first native iOS design tool that allows product designers to design, prototype, share, collaborate directly from their phone. Mm -hmm. And so I think the question is, so like, why the phone? Why, why use the phone as an input device? Yeah. What problems does this solve? And so to, to, to look at that, you have to look at kind of the existing workflow, right? And so think about you're, you're designing a mobile product, right? You're designing a mobile app your workflow probably looks something like this, right? You open up your primary design tool. That's probably Figma or Sketch or Adobe XD. You start laying out your artboards, you're designing your artboards, and then you want to see what your designs look like on your phone. So you download a mirror app, sync up the phone, and then you're sort of looking at your designs on your phone. And in that moment, you want to make a change because nothing is ever perfect the first time, right? So you want to change something in your design you have to put your phone down and you have to go back to your desktop, make that change, resync, and then look at it again. And this was something that June would always talk about because he would, when he, when he would design for mobile product, he was like, I want to get my designs on my phone. And then I want to like go and look at them like out of context of the office. Like maybe I'm walking home back to my apartment and I look at them on my phone or I'm on a park bench. He's like, and in that moment, I realized that I want to change something, but I can't. So I have to like remember what I want to change, go back to the office tomorrow, make the change. And so that was the, the beginning of the idea where he was like, I want to just change it right in that moment. I want to have my phone and then look at that and then change it right in the moment. Be able to experience my design as I'm designing it on the medium that my user, that my end user is going to experience it on. And what was cool is that as we kind of built it out, we realized that being able to plug into iOS, it opened up all of this other opportunity, right? Because right now our design tools are amazing general design tools. So I'll use a design tool, like you'll use Figma to design a website or a mobile app or a wedding invitation or a business card or a resume, which is amazing. But if I'm a mobile product designer, what if I want to have video in my design or my prototype? What if I want to have a calendar or a date picker? What if I want to have an input text field or a native modal or a map or any of these things? I, I, I have to create these hacks to like fake it in my design tool. 
Mm-hmm. And so with Play, we just serve up all of these amazing things that Apple has created and give designers the ability to kind of play in the sandbox that Apple has created. We layer our, essentially our Play UI on top of that, and we give them the properties to manipulate. So you want to add a live map, just one tap, you add it to your page, you drop pins wherever you want to, you could connect that to a stack of cards to swipe through, and now it's connected to the pins. Um, you want to use real native pan gestures, right? Instead of using web technologies to try to simulate, right? Native okay, gestures, sure. panning, swiping. So it's um, those are some of the things that differentiate the product. Um, and the focus is really how do we create a platform specifically for designers who are designing for the mobile phone? How do we make that the best possible design experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally makes sense. I mean, is it then basically like a little bit like Webflow where you can experience the product? Um, directly, where it's kind of similar to you know doing a prototype. I think you you mentioned like adding a map, for example, right, and using uh, uh, using the actual leverages from the system. Yeah, exactly. That's a good. Uh, I would say it's a good analog. Um, the one meaning like so as you're designing in Webflow, you're designing and building the website that you're creating at the same time, right? So you're able yep. to see the thing, the real thing, right? It's, you're not creating a simulation. So play is similar in that way. However, we don't classify ourselves as like an app builder per se, because there isn't like an export to app store functionality, yeah. right? Maybe in the future, um, that will be something, it's certainly something that we talk about you know, a lot, but right now our focus is creating the best possible design tool for mobile, for teams, right? Individuals designing for mobile. We're beginning to think through what is developer handoff or code export or um, sort of app store mm-hmm. submission if we go that route look like, but... Um, yeah, you're you're making a real app when you're designing in play, and the person that experiences it is also experiencing it as a real app. It's not like a uh, you know like a, a wrapper you know around you know um, you know an app, and it's uh, it's it's a real native app that you're creating. Yeah, and I think probably what works great and is also the sharing functionality, right? Because you know since it's mobile first, it's you know easier to kind of like share it with people to get to get feedback. Um, yeah, super interesting. What are sort of like key issues that you had to solve in the in the process? I'm sure like I think before the episode we already in interaction a lot with like uh, active users, right? To get feedback. And I'm wondering a little bit what are sort of like key challenges in the design process of the design tool and how did you overcome them? So many iterations of of yeah. of the product, you know. Um, I mean it's what the the great thing is having co-founders um <clears throat> and partners that are just really, really smart and really good at what they do. Um, between June and Eric Hang, we call him Hang, uh, in the early days, it was just really them, right? Like I'm not coding, you know, we're just, they're just thinking through what is this, <clears throat> what does this core interface look like? How can we essentially fit an entire design tool on the phone? Which by the way, I thought was impossible in the beginning. You know, <laughs> I was like, I was like, guys, I don't think I was like, Gene, really? Like everything on the phone? Like, how, like how, you know? And he's like, yeah, I think it's possible. I think we can do it. And I'm like, well, I, I trust if anyone can do it, I believe that you can do it. Right. So I think the cool moment as you've, as you've seen in the product. So we, we make liberal use of uh, sliders um, as the core UI to change property values. There's other things as well, but essentially when you're, when you're using the editor and play, you're using sliders to change the value of something. 
And so there was this kind of cool moment where June was playing around with that and Aang was coding it. And when you were dragging the slider, everything would disappear and you would just have the knob of the slider. So you can see what you were changing on the page. And then you can also move the slider vertically in case it was in the way of something. So it was like this magical moment early on where after trying lots of different UI ideas, that was the one. And we sort of knew it, you know, like the, the guys knew it. And then when I started to play with it, I was like, guys, this is like magical. It's like, I really, and then everything started to, so then you pressure test it, right? You're like, okay, well, is it going to work to change this type of property and this type of property? And you sort of push it through every possible iteration of what it needs to change. And it, and it kind of, and it kind of worked. Um, so that was like the, the building block. Um, but it's so many different, you know, we get feedback from users, uh, and we use the tool a lot, but there's nothing better than there's nothing better. And there's nothing more painful than watching a user use your product for the very first time. Right. <laughs> it's very illuminating, especially with a tool like ours. This is a very different way to work. So there's certainly a learning curve, right? Yeah. But once you get over that learning curve, there is this like sort of magical moment where you're in this flow state and you're like, wow, this is actually pretty incredible. And so, but it's getting to that point where we learn so much from our users and how we've like fine tuned the, the interface um, as we, as we've gone and then made larger product changes. Like our users have been asking for an iPad application for a very long time. You know, we're excited that in the coming weeks, we're going to be delivering on that. So we'll launch play for iPad. I'm really excited to see like how that, like what that response is and how users use it because it'll have a direct sync to the phone. So it's pretty cool. Like you can be designing on your iPad, you can hook up your keyboard and your mouse if you want to, and you can have your phone on at the same time and see all the changes in real time back and forth. So you can just go back and forth between the two devices, which is pretty cool. Um, but all that's just from listening to users, talking to users and figuring out what the pain points are and kind of what they, what they wanted. But yeah, we have a great team that's able to, I think one of the key things has been not being so precious about any solution. Like we may think it's a great solution, but if users don't get it, we've got to kind of rethink it. And so we have really smart team members, but uh, everyone's very open to feedback and, and trying to constantly just make things better. And I think striking that balance is always really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, and then like, how do you manage that relationship with the, uh, with the design community? I mean, it's basically um, designing for designers a little bit, right? Uh, how do you manage that relationship? And we have that little testing community and facilitate that process with prototypes, any kind of learnings that you have there for the audience? Yeah, it's interesting. The feedback is very, um, I would say contextual based on the designer's experience and background. So what I mean by that, like, so for example, in play, it's not a free form design tool, right? It's not like you can just drag and drop anything anywhere. You have to think through the structure of the product that you're designing. So similar, like think of it as like, if you were, if you had to use auto layout and Figma all the time, it's a very, like the, the layout system in play is based on like Flexbox or CSS. So if you're a designer that either uses auto layout and Figma or has experience in, you know, knows what like Flexbox is, you'll pick up the layout system and play really quickly. But if you have no experience in that, your, your, your first question is, I don't understand how to lay things out on the page. 
So that designer's feedback is going to be very specific to like the layout system because they're just coming from an artboard design tool where they're placing everything in an absolute position, right? Whereas the feedback from a designer, like a product designer, maybe they have a slight, a little bit of engineering background, or they just understand how apps are made. They start to go very deep in their questions and their feedback. Like, oh, how do I, like, can I, can I link external data to my collection view? Right. So they're already, they already know what UI collection view in, in iOS is. They know that we can use it in, in play and they're already getting one step ahead and wanting to make the power user features even more powerful. So it's like two ends of the spectrum where, and I think this is it for every product, right? Where mm -hmm. you have your power users and they want more. <laughs> and so you want to design more sophisticated, more sort of advanced features for them. And then you have, which is really, if you think of like the law of technology adoption curve, right? Mm -hmm. Like those users are really like the, I don't know, first two and a half or 12 and a half percent of the total market, right? the innovators and the early adopters. And then you have the everyone else essentially, right? And so, but you've still got a design for, for them as well. So that's where we're thinking about, you know, educational content and like whether it's in-app content or YouTube or a support site, trying to educate people in terms of like getting them over that initial learning curve. So it's, it's just watching people use the product, talking with them, but it's interesting based on their sort of background and skill set, how different the feedback is which is one of the hardest things to, man to, to kind of manage and digest. Cause you, you're like, okay, well, which door, you know, which direction do we, do we, do we go in with this, with this particular feature? So. That's always, that's always a big struggle with, you know, any kind of product development, you know, you get the, you have that, you know, you like the extreme users, the early adopters, like you said, and the more people who for them, it's a complete uh, new product. that need more time. So kind of like, like that tension and kind of making sure like you're not over-engineered like, you know, towards like one of these directions, I think that's always a challenge, right? Because if you, if you implement more expert features, then, you know, the other side, it gets lost and it's not simple enough. Right. So it's exactly. always a big problem. Yeah. And I mean, I think the other kind of interesting, um, aspect here is that, I mean, by saying no on like product requirements, you can actually open up a, a room for innovation. So what I want to trying to say is that you know, when you look at the other graphical design tools, you can do a lot. I mean, you can design a banner, you can design like a website, you can design the logo, you can do a lot of different things, right? And that flexibility is great. But, you know, if you if you say, like, okay, we don't need all of that, but we take one specific use case here. We take that use case of that user, for example, NAP, right? And we design um, a tool towards accomplishing that the best way you basically ending up with a different product. You, you, you have to say no to a lot of other things, but it, it basically opens up a room for innovation, right? That, you know, you, you cannot get any other way, right? You, you, it really just comes from like, like, what do you say no to? And I assume like, then if you know your, your use case, but um, you can have a very systematic approach. So what I'm seeing also from play is that it's very much driven also by um, a design system approach, right? Where you... Uh, set certain sort of headline colors etc so it's really all designed towards that that specific use case and you, you just end up with a more tailored solution for that use case yeah exactly because we we know exactly who we're designing for and we know like we're not we're, you're not going to use play to design a website 
right? You're not going to use play to design, uh, you know, a business card or it's not a free form design tool. So to your point, we just want to make the best possible tool for people designing mobile products, period. Right. And yeah. so that allow that gives us focus and it allows us to just laser in on what are the pain points of that particular user and in, inside of this workflow. And of course, there's always nuance in the workflow, but it does, it, it gives us focus, which is really important because if not, you're, you, you can just be all over the place and then you lack direction. So we, we know the direction that we're, that we're, that we're going in and that focus, I think is, you know, is really important. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally makes sense. I mean, there's also a big movement around sort of like no code, sort of no code movement, uh, sort of like in the design industry where, you know, and I think with your product, you kind of get closer to that vision um, to a certain degree. I think you said in the beginning, you know, it's a little bit more down the road, potentially, like that you can export this even to an app, et cetera, right? Obviously, a lot of technical things still to solve for that. Yep. But I think overall, so it's it hints towards that that future, um, of course, considering all the technical limitations. Um, but you know, how do you see that um, sort of playing together, sort of that overall movement towards a designer going further into shipping products and sort of like the, what you are building here in terms of like an overall vision? Yeah. So it's yeah, good. It's a really good question. So I think ultimately it's about the end audience that we're serving, right? And so if you are so right now we. Our focuses are on product designers inside of product teams, right? Um, and it could be any size team, right? But we want to focus on teams that are designing maybe their first app for their business, or maybe just be uh, iterating on existing features or uh, on features for an existing app rather, or maybe it's an agency, right? That is doing a lot of different mobile products, mobile apps for, for clients. So if there's a code export feature, it's probably catered more towards individual SMBs, right? Like where I'm going to export my app that I make and play and then put that in the app store. Mm -hmm. That's probably not the enterprise level, right? Because the engineering teams there are like, well, I don't want, like, I don't want the exported. Like, you're just going to give me an Xcode file. Like, I, I don't know if, what good is that to me, right? We have our whole framework that we're already engineering in. So I think the use case of how we close the loop is really dependent on what user are we trying to, to serve? So in the example of a larger product team inside of an organization, the question then becomes, well, what is their workflow from design to engineering and what's going to be most valuable and most useful? How do we get something that a designer has created in play? How do we get that to an engineering team where it's going to be useful? Because there's so many dev handoff capabilities and tools and code export, and like none of them have really been all that successful. Mm -hmm. right? Probably for a variety of reasons, but mainly like engineers want to work in the way that they want to work. So uh, our, our first step was creating a tool that at least created some boundaries for a designer to think through the product that they're making. So an engineer right now, even if an engineer, we get this feedback from engineers, they're like, what's cool is if I look at the design file, like in play, I can see the structure of the file and I know that my designer is thinking through the things that I'm going to have to think through when I'm actually building this. So it's almost impossible to give them something in play that isn't possible to engineer, right? Which is always like what, like designer makes something and design tool and then engineer looks at him like, well, we really can't do that that way. Right. <laughs> and then you have a back and forth all the time. So in play, 
it's kind of cool because the more educated the designer gets, the more they begin speaking the engineer's language, right? So mm-hmm. they'll be the, you know, we'll talk to a team and they'll be like, oh yeah, like I'm building this carousel of cards or this list. And we'll say, you know, hey, you should use a collection for this, right? And a collection, what that is, is it's taking advantage of UI collection view, which is this amazing thing that Apple creates, which every app that we use uses. And it's a way to have lots of cells of content, right? So a list app and the way that it manages loading is really, really performant. So you should use this if you're going to have like a, a feed, let's say, of content. And so that's awesome because then when the designer uses that and they say, oh, I'm using a collection for this, their engineer is like, oh, wow. Like, like they're almost surprised. Like, oh, you know, you, you know what you're talking about. You designed it in the way that I'm going to actually build it. So I think the first thing is like setting that paradigm almost of like language of like how designers are creating the same way that engineers are going to build things. And then thinking about what can we extract from that process that's going to be actually usable in the form of, you know, code and syntax and more of the more of the granular stuff that an engineer may use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally makes sense. I can totally see also that uh, use case that you described earlier, um, you know, when you were saying like, you know, designing on the go, you know, um, you know, um, I'm using myself like a, a like website provider where I can also um, change parts of the website on the mobile interface, you know, sometimes just like changing a button or a hyperlink, etc. Um, so, you know, there are definitely these use cases coming up where this is like super handy. Uh, and of course, everything else that you said towards the, the sort of, uh, product proposition, I, you already mentioned that you, that, um, you also think about cross device interaction with the iPad app, right? So I'm wondering a little bit about that, how you see that sort of like playing out. You have a mobile, um, uh, application and then you have an iPad application, you know, potentially even um, uh, the desktop version, maybe in the future. Uh, but how do you how, how do you see that interaction to play out? Do you see different use cases there? Any kind of learnings on how do how do you sort of like considering like a cross device interaction? Yeah, I think from the cross device interaction, it's <clears throat> it enables flexibility, right? Yeah. Ultimately, where uh, I can now design and experience my design and share it on multiple devices, right? Mm-hmm. And so why is that valuable? Well, I may want to use my tablet in certain scenarios. I'm not, I may want to use my phone in other scenarios. I may want to use my desktop in other scenarios, right? So I think for us is the understanding of what, because all me, all of those mediums, all those devices, they have pros and cons, right? To how they're used. Like when you're designing, if you're designing on your phone for like eight hours a day, like it's not really sustainable, like the cognitive load and then focusing on the device for that long uninterrupted is very different than looking at your desktop, right? Now, what's interesting is like I, and of course I'm experienced using play, but like I could make something in play in an hour that would be, I think, nearly impossible to create in another design tool with all the interactions and native capabilities. It's almost, it'd be like a fully functioning app, right? So you can actually create much more in a less period of time, which is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. But for the multiple devices, it's cool because we'll enable also like real-time multiplayer. So when teams are working, you can have one team member working on the same file from a phone, from an iPad, maybe other platforms, Mm -hmm. um, which is really cool. Like right now, when we're testing with the iPad, it's really cool because I have the iPad open and I'm editing from the iPad and I have my phone turned on and I'm in the same project on my phone. You just sign in with your same user credentials and I'm seeing on the phone, my edits I'm making on the iPad in real time. 
like, which is, which is awesome, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the other cool thing. One of the, um, one of our users the other week, we're on a call with them and they had a really interesting point. They're like, the play file is like the source of truth now because they were like, you know, I have to admit it was a little bit of a, you know, curve getting them to download the app. But now that they have the file, so like they were creating something, they shared it with their boss, with their C-level executive. And now that that person has that file on their phone, anytime they make updates, they just need to go and tap on the play file and it loads the latest, the latest file. So it's just, it's, it's a living sort of connection between the root file and the actual, um, like the prototype file, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And you probably can give directly feedback there. Um, and it's, it's just a little bit more accessible, you know, and that makes such a difference, right? Versus like, you know, opening a, a tool or some kind of website to kind of look at things. So, but just, you know, bringing this a little bit closer to people. Yeah. I think this is very, very cool. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's like a living document, like you said, like a live document. And so basically can, you know, see a stakeholder can see the current version of the design process at any time. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. You're not just, you know, an entrepreneur and, um, you know, manager of, um, that, uh, new startup. But as you mentioned in the beginning, you were also uh, running the design agency firstborn. So I'm wondering a little bit about your learnings, uh, you know, during that period on sort of design leadership overall or growing design agency. So what were some key learnings? I mean, I know that this is a sort of like ongoing topics also for the for our audience. Like, how do you you know grow your business, uh, design business potentially, um, uh, grow sales, etc. What were some of the learnings you had there uh, running uh, and managing uh, that design agency when it comes to uh, growing the business? Mm. Yeah, from a growing the business standpoint, the agencies are service businesses, right? And I think, but they're creative businesses. I think you need to realize both of those in order to be successful, right? And so what I mean by that is <clears throat> you're a service business. So at the end of the day, like you, you, you have clients that you need to serve. Like that is what they are paying you. They're paying you to be there, but they're also ideally paying for your expertise, right? And that's that's the beauty of, I think, like the agency world where like you have a client that doesn't have the capabilities that the agency does. And so they seek out a partner to do something that they can't do, right? They've got a problem and they seek out that partner. So for us over the years, we were all project-based. And so that's a challenge, right? Because from a revenue standpoint, because like you have a great year and next year, it's like January 1st, you start all over again, you know? And it's just, it's very, um, you've got to replenish those projects every year. So you're constantly, you know, out there trying to get business or if you're lucky and, and we were lucky where you have a lot of incoming opportunities, right? So word of mouth, and being able to just get incoming opportunities. But we eventually, I think like what helped us grow the business was a balance and it was a challenge, but it was a balance between project business and agency of record business. So the agency of record business provided some, from a financial perspective, stability, because you're able to at least have some baseline of, of you know what your cost structure is, but you've got some baseline of revenue that you can sort of account for for the year. And then you have project the project-based business, which honestly are what I think a lot of people come to an agency to work for because they want variety. They want to work mm -hmm. on different types yeah. of projects, different clients. And so that balance, I think, helped us. It helped us 
you know, create a little bit of stability and then get a couple of AOR, you know, clients still peppering in some of the project-based work. I know a lot of agencies don't, they, they, they rely solely on incoming because they do great work um, and they have so much incoming opportunities. But I think um, for us, we always wanted to have a new business team. So because we wanted, there were certain clients and certain projects that we wanted to seek out, right? We wanted to go, we, oh, it'd be amazing. We worked for this brand and we wanted to go and seek out that brand uh, and see if there was a, you know, a possible partnership, you know, there. Um, but the other thing was once we had a project, how do we turn that project into a long-term client? And that's where the service part of the business comes in, right? Because even if you're delivering great work, that work needs to deliver on the business objectives of that client. And that client needs to feel like they're being serviced by their agency. And so I think being able to, you get a project worth, you know, $10, making that number up, obviously, right? You get a project worth, you know, you know, the, the $10, the idea is like, how do you 10X that project into a longer term client over the course of the year? So that would be kind of one of the goals that we, that we would have as well um, from a growth perspective. Take a project, turn it into a long-term client. And that makes sense. I mean, yeah, it's basically an, an act of balance, like you said, right? So you have like new business development and then basically um, your ongoing relationships which you're trying to scale. And I mean, if you're not focusing on the business KPIs, then you don't, you can't really build like a long-term relationship because then like the, your partner's not going to succeed, right? So um, right, right. I think uh, that also makes sense. You also mentioned that you saw this agency, right? So, um, I mean, if you're selling a service-based business, right, um, then I think the aspect of systemizing a business is, I think, very uh, important, right? So, um, like, how do you, like, make your operations efficient and sort of, like, systematic um, so you can um, create reoccurring, basically, outcomes um, and, you know, using a lot of documentations? Was that sort of like a, a key enabler uh, going towards like a, um, um, a step where you could actually sell um, an agency business? Any kind of learnings towards like managing operations and making that more efficiency? And how does it play together with sort of like acquisition of agencies? Mm, yeah, good question. To be honest, we were pretty gritty. Mm. Um, and even after we sold, uh, you know, to an extent we were. So what I mean by that is like, it, it was, and, and Michael would say this, you know, like the financials were, it was, you know, an Excel sheet and QuickBooks, like nothing fancy, just, you know, you gotta, it's a pretty straightforward P and L, right? Like when running an agency, right? There's not a lot of complexity to it, quite honestly, like from a financial perspective, mm -hmm. right? Um, we never had a CFO, Like Michael was the CFO when he, and then I was the CFO. We, and then someone could say, well, maybe you could, but for us, the key was there's the most important thing in the agency are the people creating the work. because that is what clients are paying you for, right? Anyone else, they need to be important as well. What the question is, how do they enable the agency to do what the agency does best? So that's everything from HR, finance, right? Administrative roles, et cetera. I think it's, so for us, it was like, how do we keep those as lean as possible? Because every dollar that you don't spend on creative engineering, project management, et cetera, like that's what clients are paying you for. Clients yeah. aren't paying you for how, like how great your, you know, finance great team job. is or anything yeah. like that. Right. Yeah. So I think it was, um, yeah, just keeping a close eye on that. And, and honestly, just trying to invest back into the team, our team, whenever we could, um, we were by no means perfect. You know, 
but we had really long average tenures of people. So people stayed with us for 10, 11, 12 years. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's a long time in, in, in the agency business, you know? Um, so I think that was, uh, that's a key thing, right? Because if you have turnover, you have a high degree of turnover, there's a high cost for that as well. Right. Cause you've got to onboard new people. It causes internal like friction morale. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's sort of like ironic, right? Because companies and I, we, I never really experienced this, especially early on with, with our holding company, but I've heard other stories of other holding companies where you get so much pressure to cut costs to, you know, maintain a certain profitability. And they don't realize like there's a higher cost to having all of your great people leave because you need people to do the work. <laughs> so now you need to go and hire people for more money, most likely overpay them. And they're not going to be as talented. Like, you know, that, that doesn't make, you know, that, that much sense. You're much better to, I think, overinvest in the people that you have, as long as they're really talented and you think that there's a high degree of certainty that they're going to stay at least for a decent amount of time so they can continue to deliver value, you know, for, for the agency. So, um, it was kind of like back to basics in some way, like try to treat people as well as you can find good clients, deliver great work that helps meet their business objectives and have fun while doing it. That's sort of like, that was our recipe, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. As you're running the, the agency business, I think one of the aspects that probably played a role there, uh, was also to, you know, maybe advocate for design or advocate for, you know, the value design can, I think you already mentioned like business KPIs, et cetera. Was this sort of like an, an ongoing sort of like a topic for you uh, in terms of, you know, what you guys can, you know, provide in terms of, you know, business value, um, if you would, you know, uh, be embedded in a project and how sort of like, how did you sort of frame the value design uh, can bring to us businesses in, in these conversations? Yeah, good question. Um, I think one of the most important meetings that you would have would be like the first meeting with a client where you could ascertain the value that they put on the design. Like you could write, like, so if whether it's a pitch or whether it's an initial meeting, you have a few people from your agency, you have a few people from the client, you know, you do research on them, you figure out what their background is. You can probably assess whether or not they value design to this in the same degree to the same degree that the agency does and if they do that's usually great it also means that they're probably highly opinionated which sometimes is, is not so great depending on uh the egos of the creatives inside of the agency right or i guess how good the opinions of the clients are right they can be highly opinionated with not great opinions which is sort of like worst case scenario right? yeah. <laughs> um but so i think like usually in that first meeting, we would, uh, we would have a saying where it's like, usually things don't get better than that first meeting. Like if, so if it's not a great meeting, don't expect them to like miraculously, like if you're trying to sell the client on the value of design, I don't know, they may just not be a great fit, you know, because then you're, you're, it's not like you have one meeting with them and you're like, Hey, so let me, let me explain to you the value of great design. What, what does great design mean? Well, it's more than just pretty pictures, right? It's actually it's a way to think about your business and it's a way to think about your, how your customers and your consumers interact with your brand and your business. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's not, you're going to constantly need to reinforce the value of design throughout the entire project. So I think like the best clients for us were clients that we would always say like, we want, we need two things from you. We need feedback and we need faith. 
right? Like we want your feedback mm -hmm. because you know your brand, you know your business better than we do. Although we're mm -hmm. gonna work really hard to understand your your business. So we need your feedback, but we also need your faith. Like if you're, you, you should be hiring us because you believe in what we're doing. Um, and you believe that we're great at what we do. Not perfect, but great. And so we need your faith that, you know, we're going to be able to deliver on what you ask of us. And so I think like those clients were usually like in the sweet spot where they would, they would push back sometimes and give really good feedback, but then they would, you know, you'd have a moment where the team felt really strong about something and we'd have to step in and be like, Hey, listen, we really think this is the right way to go. We kind of need you to trust us on this. And, um, you know, that's just built over, over relationship and having trust right between you know, the client and the agency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Dan, I think we covered a lot of different uh, topics all the way from design tools to, you know, how to run an agency and advocate for the value of design. So um, super interesting. I think we need to uh, wrap it up because of time, but it was really was nice uh, hearing from you. So just really like to thank you for taking your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right, that was the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you give it a thumbs up and let me know in the comments about your thoughts and biggest learnings from the episode. I'm always super curious about that. You can also tag me in a post about your biggest takeaway and share your insights with others to pass on your learnings. If the episode provided you a lot of value, make sure to follow, subscribe, and share it with friends and colleagues so they also have the chance to learn and grow. Until next time, cheers.